Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Father, we come as ready students. Quicken us, Lord, to be able to receive from you the word that came from the mouth of our Father. Lord, we pray for those Christians in northern Iraq, Lord, that Almighty God You would protect them. You would defend them, Lord. You would give them comfort. You'd give them peace, Lord. And you'd use them, Lord, to bring conviction to their enemies, Lord, that they might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 23, verse 3. Okay, and Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us, and the choice of our sepulchres bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, If it be in your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which is in the end of his field. For as much money it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burying place amongst you. And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth and Ephron the Hittite. Answered Abram in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, Nay, my Lord, hear me. The field I give I thee, and the cave that is therein I give unto thee. And the presence of the sons of my people give I thee. Bury thy dead. Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. And he spake unto Ephraim, the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephraim. And Abraham weighed to Ephraim the silver which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. And the field of Ephraim, which is men Machpelah, which is before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field, that were in all the borders round about, were made sure unto Abraham for possession in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the same as Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for possession of a burying place in the sons of Heth. 
We've been studying in this chapter, in chapter 23, and we found it very interesting because there's many things in here that are the first mentions in the Bible. This is the first mention of a mourning for the dead. This is the first mention in this chapter of a burial of the dead. This is the first mention of purchasing real estate. This is the first mention of the use of silver as money. This is the first mention of the use of a standard of weight for weighing that. But what's really captured our attention as we looked at this is God's friend Abraham and just exactly how he's dealt with the death of Sarah. Now, it certainly has captured my attention. I mean, uh, of 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and this chapter that we're in, chapter 23 of Genesis, is the 133rd lesson here that I brought on Genesis, and that probably depresses you, but anyway. (laughs) But of all the chapters in the Bible, this is the chapter that deals with the death of a wife, and how is it that it happens at this time when I'm dealing with that? All right, now we've seen in verse 2 when it says, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her, that this was painful for Abraham. We read that verse and we feel the pain of it. And Abraham, he feels this pain. And as he's sitting there feeling this pain, he says, Abraham says, wait a minute. I've experienced this pain of this losing Sarah to an insurmountable foe in the past. And he says, I've experienced this hollow feeling to lose her. We've all experienced that type of hollow feeling inside to lose something or someone very dear. This is not the first time that Abraham has felt this pain over Sarah. He felt the same pain over losing Sarah when he went into Egypt. And out of fear, he said, Sarah's my sister. He lost her because of that. She was lost. And it says in Genesis 12, 15 that we've studied, the princes also of Pharaoh saw her, commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken. Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's house. And Abraham remembered when Sarah was taken from him into Pharaoh's house. And at that time, he lost Sarah. He had that same hollow feeling inside. And the foe of Pharaoh, the army of Egypt, was absolutely insurmountable to Abraham. There was nothing he could do to defeat that foe and be reunited with Sarah. And so he remembers that awful feeling of having lost Sarah, not for a day, not for a week, but sometime. And the same way now he feels this over Sarah. And at that time, being helpless against the foe, but he remembers he had the promise of God that he was going to have offspring with Sarah. And he remembers how God intervened in that impossible situation. And it says in verse 17 of chapter 12, and the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Because of that intervention that God had, in verse 20 of chapter 12, it says, and Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away, and his wife, and all that he had. So can you imagine the joy of that reunion when Sarah and Abraham come back together again, and how Abraham would have said to Sarah, I lost you. It felt so terrible. There was nothing I could do against Pharaoh as a foe to get you back. But God brought us back together again. And so he's feeling this, and now he's going through the same intensity of the pain of having lost Sarah to death, and he remembers how this had that same feeling again. There was another time, as you remember, when he came into the land of the Philistines in chapter 20, when it says, and Abraham said of Sarah's wife, she's my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So again, it was the same thing. 
Death took her, Pharaoh took her, Abimelech took her. He's been through this a couple times. And those words, he took Sarah, and it came back this horrible feeling that Abraham had. And just as with Pharaoh, Abraham was helpless against Abimelech to get Sarah back. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 20, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken. She's another man's wife. She's a man's wife. See, it's because of the intervention of God again that Sarah and Abraham were reunited. Now, how long was that? Now, exactly, are we talking about, a, you know, an afternoon that she was gone or a day or a week? Well, it's interesting because at the end of that chapter, chapter 20, you remember that when Abraham had prayed to God for Abimelech, that it says God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bear children, it said in verse 18 of chapter 20. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, exactly how long does it take to figure out that you're infertile? Maybe nine months at least. And so this was a long time when Abraham was separated from Sarah and and had to endure this pain. But he lived with that, maybe it was nearly a year, with that awful feeling. So it's all a repeat. It's all a repeat for Abraham. He feels the same awful feeling, lost Sarah to a foe that's helpless, this time to his death. But just as God intervened against Pharaoh, just as God intervened against Abimelech to bring Abraham and Sarah back together again, God will intervene against death to bring Abraham and Sarah back together again when Abraham will die and join Sarah with God. Now, we saw in our last study, though Abraham loved Sarah very much, that his life was not bound up with Sarah. His life was bound up with Jehovah Jesus. We saw how Judah speaking to, um, well, it's to Joseph, but he didn't know it was Joseph. But anyways, he was speaking about his father Jacob in the context of Benjamin, and he said in Genesis 44:30 that his father's life was bound up in Benjamin's life, in the lad's life. And as much as Abraham loved Sarah, Abraham's life was not bound up in the life of Sarah. What was true about Abraham is what Clint pointed out to me after the last class is true about David and what Abigail said to David in 1 Samuel 25, 29. Very interesting when Abigail said to him, the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life. What a wonderful thing. Abigail said, your soul, David, the soul of my Lord, will be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. And the souls of thine enemies, she goes on to say, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling, you know, like the slingshot, you know, that he used to kill Goliath. What a wonderful description that is of what it means for us to be in Christ. Christ, who is our life, as it says that in Colossians 3, 4, Christ, who is our life. Christ, who is, according to John 14, 6, the, the way, the truth, and the life. That's another name for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the bundle of life. He's the bundle of life. And what it means for us to be in Christ is that we are bound with him in the bundle of life. To be bound with the Lord Jesus Christ in the bundle of life is to be in the place where he said in Romans 8, 1, where it's written, therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. See, to be bound with him in the bundle of life is to be protected The protection that he described in John 10, 27 through 28, when he said, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give, it's a gift, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, and neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 
When we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives us eternal life. And why is no man able to pluck us out of his hand? Because he's the bundle of life, and we are bound with him in the bundle of life. So the image, this image that she's talking about here, Abigail, when she said being bound in the bundle of life in 1 Samuel 25, 29, it doesn't stop with being bound in the bundle of life, which she described David as. It goes on to speak about those who are not in Jehovah Jesus, those who are not in Christ, those who are the enemies, and it says that they're also bound in a bundle. But that is not a bundle of life. She put it this way. The souls in 1 Samuel 25, 29. And the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. So the image continues to describe those outside of Christ as bound in a bundle. But it's a bundle that's in the middle of a sling that's ready to be slung out. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ used the word cast in Matthew 8, 12, when he said, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast, slung out, into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So to be in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be, according to 1 Samuel 25, 29, bound in the bundle of life where no man can pluck him out of his hand. To be outside of the Lord Jesus Christ is also to be bound in the middle of a sling ready to be slung out. Now, in verse 4, we saw how the first thing that Abraham said to the sons of Heth was, I'm a stranger and a sojourner with you. He said he was a stranger to the Hittite, to the Hittites. He said, I'm not a Hittite. He said, I'm a stranger with you. And then he said, I'm a sojourner. Of course, he was a traveler, but he didn't say he was a traveler and a pilgrim, but he didn't say he was a pilgrim. He said he was a sojourner, which means that he was a person who was living there on a temporary basis, is there for a temporary time. And when the sons of Heth then heard that, then they responded in verses five and six, when they answered and said, hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. So he says, I'm a stranger and pilgrim, a sojourner. And they said, no, you're a mighty prince among us. Thou art a mighty prince among us. And we recognize something in Abraham, and it was evident here in how Abraham was mourning for Sarah, and he was sad, but there was a hope in his sadness that caused him to get up again and to say, okay, it's time for bearing the dead out of my sight. Because he had this hope of the resurrection in his mourning. There's his mourning there for Sarah. And the sons of Heth saw that, and they said, you know, you're a mighty prince, a prince with God with us. We don't see a broken, crushed man here. We see a mighty prince with God. And it reminds us of when Balaam, when he was attempting to curse the Jewish people, how he ended up blessing them, and as he looked at the Jewish people, he started to think about himself, Balaam did. And he said in Numbers 23.10, who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? And then he says, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. See, Balaam looks at the Jewish people with God in their midst and he thought of how, boy, well, I envy the way they die. I envy them. And he said, I want to die the death of the people of God who have the righteousness of God. I want to die that death where the priest has on his holiness unto the Lord. Later on, they're going to have plates around the horses. They said, the Lord, our righteousness. I would love to die that way with the Lord's righteousness. Boy, that my last end can be like his. As he looks at the people of God, he says that. And so there's an envy in the speech of Balaam, and there's an envy in the speech of the sons of Heth that they say they are the mighty prince among us. It reminds me of a brilliant, absolutely brilliant, 
Jewish friend of mine in England, melatonin. You all have heard of melatonin? He discovered it. He was the uh, dean of the uh, medical school in uh, Surrey. Very, very brilliant man. And uh, an atheist. An avowed atheist. As a matter of fact, he actually has a congregation of atheists that meet on Sunday morning, nonetheless. <laughs> Called the Humanist Society. When he heard of my wife, he wrote me that he hopes that my faith in God will carry me through this trial. I was amazed at that. He has no faith in God. You know, he has no faith in God. He has no belief in God. But he knows how in the face of death, faith in God can carry a person through a trial. And so Balaam says, oh, I envy. Let me die that death. Let my last stand be like his. And the sons of Heth say to Abraham, you're a mighty prince among us. And you can hear the sons of Heth saying, I wish I was a mighty prince with God. So we looked at verse 8 where it says, and he communed with them. And Abraham took time to spend with these sons of Heth. He took this time. And this is the way we bring lost people to the Lord Jesus Christ, by communing with them. It's not just by knocking on their door and saying, hello, are you, you know you're a sinner on your way to hell, and by the way, good morning. No, it's spending time with them. It's interesting when you think about the tabernacle, just how beautiful and just how magnificent the tabernacle was with its beautiful coverings and tapestries of fine white linen and and the embroidery and the blue and the purple and the scarlet and the gold was gorgeous. And the ram skins dyed red and the badger skins and the goat's hair and all those coverings were. And when you stood inside the tabernacle and you looked up and you say, gorgeous beauty. And you look at the wall, gorgeous beauty, magnificent, until you look down. And when you look down, all you see is the desert sand. Now why? Because they ran out of money, they couldn't make a floor? <laughs> so, when Moses called for the donation of the tabernacle, it says in Exodus that they brought so much that Moses had to say, we have enough and too much. Don't bring anything more. Wouldn't that be something? We get up on Sunday morning, said, no more offerings. <laughs> we have too much. <laughs> they had plenty. It was purposeful that there was no beautiful floor down there of the tabernacle, like the walls and the ceilings, because just the ground, just the sand, it's so striking, it's no floor. Just why? To teach us that we are not to insulate ourselves from the world. We're not. Like Abraham, we are to commune with the lost in the world in order to reach them and bring them. The tabernacle, just the desert floor for the floor, teaching us that we're not to insulate ourselves from this world by only getting together with Christians at church, by having no meaningful contact with the lost, if I was to say to you, all right, this Friday night, we're going to have a special dinner for the lost. Everyone bring a lost friend this Friday night. This Friday night is for us to bring lost friends. I wonder how many would say, I don't have any lost friends. I don't have anybody to bring. That ought not to be. Verse 8 says that Abraham communed with them. Now we see that uh, Abraham, in verse 8, he spent time with them so they could become his friends. And they did become his friends to the extent that it was in their mind and their heart to help them. They were his friends. He said that in verse 8. He communed with them saying, if it be in your mind, if it be in your heart, if you be in your will, if you be in your soul, that I should bury my dead, hear me and entreat for me. He had become such friends with these sons that he could say that. It's in your mind. And he could say, I can see you really want to help me. And we saw how Abraham then trusted them to negotiate for him to ask Ephron to sell the cave that he had. In verse 9, that he may give me the cave which he hath, which is in the end of his field. So really, we see here in Abraham, he's making himself vulnerable. 
He's making himself vulnerable to these Hittites by asking them to go intercede. This is important. He has a dead body of wife on his hands here that's deteriorating, and there's not a lot of other options around. But he does this. And so Abraham trusts them. He had to trust them. And if they were not Abraham's friends and really wanted Abraham to get out of there, they would have went to Ephron and said, you know, Abraham, he'll be a bad neighbor. You don't want to sell him your cave, you know. But Abraham had taken the time to build the friendship, build a bridge of friendships, because he would know they will not double-cross him. And it's interesting how Abraham describes the location of the cave in verse 9, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he have, which is in the end of his field, and for as much money and so forth. He describes the location of the cave as at the end of his field. So we picture the cave of Machpelah, and we see a field, and at the far end of this field is this cave of Machpelah here. And we see from verse 17 that the field had trees as bordering it to mark it out. And we see from verse 9 that Abraham, he just wanted to buy the cave. He wasn't asking for the field. He didn't want to buy the field. He didn't want to buy the trees. He just wanted to buy the cave. But in the end, Abraham ends up buying everything, the field, the trees, the cave. I don't know why. I guess Ephron, he just didn't want to own a field that every time he looked up, he'd see this place that was a burial place for Abraham. I don't know, his family. Maybe it's too spooky for him. <laughs> and he want to be working in a field and look up and see this burial place. But when you think about it, the cave at the end of the field, the field represents work. And a field is where you work planting and harvesting and grazing animals in the field. It's a place of work. You can think of it like a place of life work. And for Ephron, it was a place of work. And for us, we can think of the field as representing the work that we're involved in in life, our life work. And at the end of the field, it's interesting, in the end of the field is the cave or the grave. And whatever our field is, whatever our life work is, there's a grave at the end of the field. And it's healthy for us to consider that, to think about that. The problem is, is that we, man, has a tendency to only see the field and not to see the cave at the end of the field. To only see the field of his work and not to see the grave at the end of his life. Because man gets all wrapped up in his work, all wrapped up in his work, all wrapped up in his field. And he's distracted himself from seeing the cave at the end of the field. Especially the Jewish people are good at this. And that's exactly why Moses prayed for the Jewish people for a wisdom. He said, oh, I want a wisdom, a certain wisdom in them and an understanding. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 28 through 29, Deuteronomy 32, verse 28 through 29, Moses said, for they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this that they would consider their latter end. That was his prayer in Deuteronomy 32, 28, 29. Oh, that they were wise, they would consider their latter end. He prayed that. In other words, he was praying that they'd lift up their eyes from the field of their work to see the cave at the end of the field and consider their latter end. You know, this last week I had the privilege of hosting a dear Jewish friend of mine over to the house for lunch. I made him lunch. We ate. We sat outside. We talked a lot. And at the end of eating this, the lunch that I made for him, I asked him how old he was. Looks at me strange. You said he was 68. I said, oh, my wife was 67 when she left the earth. So I said, uh, I just have one question. And I said, what's going to happen to you after you die? He looks shocked. He looks at me. He says, you feed me this great steak, and then you hit me with this question. <laughs> and then he proceeded to tell me about all the business deals that he's got going on in Mexico and France and everywhere and what he's hoping to accomplish and 
I couldn't bring them back to consider his latter end, to consider the cave at the end of the field. Even though I asked him, I said, wouldn't it be a tragedy if you distracted yourself with all of your business deals all the way up to your death, refusing to consider your latter end and failed to be reconciled to God by accepting the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins? Even though I said that to him, you know, he just kept going on about his business deals. And I said, okay, you want to talk about business? I said, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ asked a business question about life. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org, or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Do you believe God created the heavens and the earth? Then come celebrate Creation Day on Saturday, November 5th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. This is a Christian family festival event with games, rides, contest prizes, fair food, petting zoos, animal shows, super science experiments for kids, plus life-size dinosaurs at our brand-new Dinosaur Gardens exhibit, plus world-renowned speakers, Ray Comfort, Tom Cantor, Eric Hoven, Jay Siegert, and more. Free admission to the museum and all speaking engagements are free for your family and your entire church family. The Creation Earth History Museum is located off Highway 67 and Woodside Avenue North in Santee next to the Santee Drive-In. Bring your family and friends Saturday, November 5th and strengthen your faith at Creation Day, San Diego's Christian Family Festival event. For more information, call 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104 or creationsd.org creationsd.org.